Phil, come on up. You said in the first service you were a gas preacher. You know gas boy, you're one of us. Come on, dog. morning. Well, yeah, uh, I don't know what, what to make of that. My name is Phil Hanner, uh, and I am happy, not a guest, but delighted to be with you this morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I met my wife here 15 years ago. I think my claim to fame is that I convinced my wife to settle. And uh, I'm grateful uh, for Rebecca Pop, now Hanner. She's actually out here with my boys somewhere. I was surprised to see them down. That was great. But anyway, there she is. Thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, I still don't know where to, where, to, where to start from that. But but anyway, it is a joy to be with you. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I'm the rector of a church down there called Redeemer. And it is uh, just a joy to be at the church where I first learned about Anglicanism. Uh, I came to this church uh, a rookie. I learned about the Book of Common Prayer at Barbara's house. Uh, I learned about um, some of the liturgy and why we do what we do from uh, the priests here at this church. Uh, and so this really holds a very special place in my heart. And you all sent me to seminary in Philadelphia. And so it really is a, a joy to be back with you and a joy to open up God's word and to share with you this morning. Um, so would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and for the great hope and the great wisdom that's found in relation to him. Would you send your Holy Spirit now, open our hearts to the truth, uh, that we might be transformed by your grace into your people. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, like many of you, uh, maybe in the, in the past few years, for the past two years, I've had to just start, wear, start wearing glasses. And it's been a bit of a drag, especially in mornings like today, because I came in while it was raining. And when I entered into the, into the, the sanctuary, everything was all foggy and smudged and kind of messed up. It was kind of gross. And uh, it's easy for that to happen from time to time. And so what I have to do is I have to take my glasses off and clean them. It's, it's actually kind of annoying, I'll be honest. I'm learning contentment slowly. Uh, but... But like Tim pointed out last week, that we all have a lens, or like glasses, through which we see the world around us. All of us have uh, sort, of, sort of areas of our life that have been impacted by social or familial or worldly or what, what we see on TikTok or Twitter or what have you, that sort of shape our worldview. And all of us are impacted by something. And I think what Paul uh, recognizes uh, in the church at Corinth is that for many, sometimes the way we look at the world is a bit skewed. Sometimes we embrace God's design for us and the wisdom that we see within his word. And sometimes we take sort of maybe perhaps worldly or, or even ungodly attitudes or perspectives and sometimes try to blend them with our Christian worldview. And sometimes I, I guess I feel like it's sort of like if I were to take my glasses off and pop one lens out. Try to imagine what that would look like if I walked around the world with like one lens accurate and one just, you know, blind. I'd probably just run into stuff. It'd be very annoying and very embarrassing. And I think that's a bit of the struggle that Corinth is having in their day. Uh, the church at Corinth was struggling to hold on to the worldview that was consistent with God's design, with his wisdom. And they were inclined to embrace the secular opulence, materialism, self-promotion, and the sort of, uh, maybe I guess, zeitgeist of their day. See, Corinth was very successful, and likely the people of Corinth were very successful. They had money. They had resources. They were in a, a port city that was the, the capital of their region, Achaia, and I often sort of picture Miami. I know last week Tim encouraged you to consider uh, Las Vegas, but for me, Miami just works. Fast boats, fast chariots, loose morals. I'm sure there's like a Corinth Vice, you know, like a, a TV show from the past. But anyway, it was, it, that, that's kind of what I imagine. I would imagine that living in that city would be very difficult. 
You know, the temptation of loving money the way your neighbors love money or, or loving perhaps uh, sexual indiscretion like many in Corinth did. The, the Corinthian lifestyle was one of lavish indulgence. And it was very difficult sometimes for the Christians in Corinth to live in, in keeping with their design, in keeping with God's word, when the world had so much pressure, so many voices were screaming out for their attention. I think often we have a very similar struggle in the 21st century as well. It's easy sometimes to sort of be impacted by the world around us, especially with their views of sexual morality, issues of gender, the sacredness of life, both with children and the elderly. But at the heart of the problem in Corinth, it wasn't just an issue of morality. It was a failure to appreciate the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the wisdom that flows out from a relationship to him. That's why last week, earlier in chapter 2, Paul said, When I came to you in Corinth, I desired to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. Because he is the source or the fount of all wisdom. Jesus is the fount of all wisdom. So Paul is going to challenge them. And in some ways, I think he's challenging us this morning. Because Corinth had had sort of blurred lines with regards to their worldview. They had embraced partly maybe a godly worldview and partly the way of the world. Paul is going to set up a dichotomy. He's going to sort of basically call them back into account and say, no, 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 let's look at things accurately. There is a natural way of looking at the world and a spiritual way of looking at the world. The natural way will ultimately lead to death, but the spiritual view or the spiritual wisdom that's afforded to us in the power of the Holy Spirit will lead to life. And that's where we're actually going to begin this morning. So in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul opens by setting up this dichotomy. If you have your copy of God's word, we're going to be kind of just walking through the text together. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What Paul is saying here, there's, there's really only two approaches to life. Through the spiritual lens, which comes through a relationship to Jesus Christ, or a natural view of the world that rejects the God of the universe. And this sort of spiritual birth, if you will, I think is one that Jesus himself taught in John chapter 3. Remember the story of Nicodemus? Nicodemus was, excuse me, Nicodemus was a re religious leader at the time, a well-respected one. And he comes to Jesus in John chapter 3. And he asks him, what's so special about your teaching? I can see that you're a, a religious man. And Jesus says to him, if you want to follow me, you must be born again. You must be born again to a living hope, is actually what, what Peter says. In other words, all people who are born are living. If you're here with us this morning, you are a natural person. You've been born, thank God for your mothers, right, to, to life. And you've been given life. All, all who are alive have life, which is a, an act of God's kindness. But, but God in, in Jesus Christ is telling us that in order for our hearts and minds to be opened, we have to be born again by receiving the good news that Christ has come to redeem sinners. And in receiving that gift of grace, God promises to open our hearts to see that he is, in fact, not just a God. He is our God and the one who loves us. 
See, the Christian life, as J.I. Packer says, in every aspect, whether it's intellectual or ethical, devotional or relational, witnessing or even in worship, is always supernatural grace. It's only by the Spirit that he can initiate and sustain our Christian life. See, even embracing the truth of the gospel is an act of God's kindness where the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts and illumines our hearts to the truth. And that's exactly what uh, Paul and Jesus in this particular case is saying. And so we continue in verse 15. The spiritual person, as opposed to the natural person, judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. Paul is saying here that a spiritual person is judged by God because ultimately spiritual truth is God's truth. It's withstood the test of time. We've seen for thousands of years now and even thousands of years before that that God's word has proven true and that we can take him at his word and believe him. See, the authority of the believer's life is ultimately rooted in the wisdom of God not on my feelings, not on my, even my perspective, but ultimately by God who has determined the world by the, by the word of his power. Remember there's a story of, uh, of an American who went to the Louvre in Paris and he was beholding the Mona Lisa. Perhaps you're familiar with the painting. It's arguably the most important painting that's ever been made, right? And, and almost everyone agrees with that. And this American, you know, in sort of typical, if you picture a movie, typical American fashion, went up to the Mona Lisa and said, wow, that's, that's not that impressive. That really doesn't look that good. <clears throat> and of course, the French person, delighting in their Frenchness, you know, sort of came up to him and said, sir, that painting has already been judged, and it's been judged as good. You are now the one who's being judged. And what she was saying was the painting has already been recognized the world over as authoritative and good and beautiful. And your ignorance doesn't change the fact that it is still good and beautiful. And the same is true with how we approach God. Just because sometimes my feelings may be inconsistent with God's word, or perhaps my desires, which are sometimes wrong, may be inconsistent with God's word, doesn't mean that God's word isn't right. It means that from time to time I sin. And I'm led astray, often by my own passions and false desires. And that's what happens when we reject God's word and the wisdom that comes from Christ's teaching. Sadly, though, in the church in Corinth, just like sometimes in the Western church in America, we try to sort of say, well, God, I'll believe you here, but I won't believe you here. And we sort of have a sort of uh, Stepford Wives version of God. But that God doesn't save because he's not real. We worship the living God who saves. And sometimes our relationship is incompatible because we're selfish. At least that's true for me. And so he continues in verse 16. He says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What Paul is observing here is we don't tell God what to do. It's not like we go into heaven and tell God, Listen, we know better. Here's what you ought to be doing. Right? That's not what we do. It's Jesus who is the fount of all wisdom and knowledge and truth and beauty. And what Jesus actually invites us to consider is, to, is that we can have a relationship with him who is the source of all of those things. And we can approach him and humbly ask for help. And that is part of what God does through the transformation of the renewal of our minds. And what Paul, I, I believe, is saying here rather clearly is it's actually only in Christ that the, that the world makes sense. C.S. Lewis kind of famously said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. 
Sadly, the sun's not really working for my metaphor right now. Uh, but if you can imagine another day, you know, the sun is the light by which its, its light is shed abroad the whole world. And we can see because the sun, by the grace of God, every day is illumining the world around us. And the same is true for Christ. It's only in Christ that the whole world makes any sense at all. What are the fundamental questions that you or maybe your friends ask from time to time? Well, some common ones look like this. Why is the world wonderfully beautiful? Why is it tremendously pretty? And yet, at the same time, we experience terrible hardship and pain. We all experience suffering and sorrow and death and betrayal. We know all these things. I mean, I'm sure that all of you have experienced perhaps all of those things, perhaps just in one relationship. But the reality is the world is both beautiful because in the wisdom of God, God created it, and broken because of the sinfulness of man, and yet can be restored in the wisdom of God because before the foundations of the world, God had a plan to restore all things through his son, Jesus Christ. And so it's only in Jesus that we understand that the world is created well, and yet it's sinful and broken on account of Adam and Eve, and yet restored in Jesus Christ such that God can break into this broken world with a new kingdom that we just read about just a few minutes ago, where we are invited to participate with God as his people, as a spiritual people. But also, what about goodness? How about, I want to do good. I know the Ten Commandments. I've memorized them. Uh, I I know the Lord's Prayer. I was was in Tim's Sunday school class. Uh, I, I know these things, and yet from time to time, I fail. In fact, more often than not, I fail. So how do I embrace the reality that I want to do good, and yet so often, I can't do it? Who will save me from this body of death? Remember, Paul asked that question in Romans 7. Well, thanks be to God and Jesus Christ. God has restored that which is broken and sinful and invites us to new life, new birth, so that we can follow him and embrace him as God's people. See, Paul struggled with this as well. If you remember, Paul was a zealot, right? Paul was infinitely smart. He probably knew his scripture better than all of us in this room together, right? But he didn't understand that it was only Jesus Christ that made sense of all of scripture, he didn't understand that, that he, he wasn't as good, perhaps, as he thought he was. And so God would have to humble him. He would knock him off his donkey so that he could look up and see the grace of God staring down at him in Jesus Christ. But the beauty is, is God didn't waste all of Paul's learning. See, Paul had sort of set up Christmas lights. I, mean, if you, I guess maybe you've taken a tree down. I hope you have. We just set ours on fire. Uh, but, but Paul sort of set up Christmas lights around the tree, but they were never plugged in. And Christmas lights that are not plugged in around a Christmas tree don't really do much. And it took being knocked down and humbled that that he would see that Jesus Christ had come to redeem him, a man whose goodness prevented him seeing the grace of God. And so Jesus sort of took the the plug of those lights and plugged them in, and, and all of Paul's life began to make sense because he saw that it was Jesus who was at the center of everything. See, we have this mind of Christ that Paul talks about in Philippians 2. And if you, if you put that up there, that'd be great. When Paul talks about this mind of Christ, he actually articulates it elsewhere in the, the letter to the Philippians. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. See, in the beauty of God's wisdom, he used a cruel cross, which was often the symbol of shame, to overturn the judgment of Satan and the world, and to raise his son to new life, such that all who look upon him might be given grace and an eternal hope. 
And so I think that's an important distinction that what Paul is saying here. The wisdom of God may sometimes look very different to the wisdom of the world. It certainly did in the first century when Jesus died on the cross. And the same is true in the 21st century as well. From time to time, the wisdom of God may run contrary to the world around us. And you may even experience hardship or pain or difficulty. And that's likely what the Corinthians were wrestling with as well. And so Paul continues in offering this distinction here. He's in, in talking about the natural person versus the spiritual person, he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as fleshly people, natural people, as infants in Christ. And so I had to feed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready because you are still of the flesh. What Paul is saying here is that he wanted to teach the Corinthian church about the deeper truths of the wisdom of God, but they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't embrace the basic truths of the gospel. So Paul had to sort of say, I've got to reiterate these truths to you because you really don't get it. And so, sometimes when you think about this passage, milk and meat, it's a bit tricky. Like, what exactly is Paul talking about here? And so I'd like to take a concrete example and maybe just expound from that. I have three children, Cole and Bram and Peter. And one of the things that my wife and I are trying to teach them on the regular is how to be grateful, right? Gratitude is not something that comes easy to all of us. In fact, for some of us, it's, it's, it's actually not very easy at all. And children, and even the ancient Jews and the ancient Greeks would agree with this, need to be taught gratitude as a virtue, right? And so when someone gives my kids a lollipop, what do, what do you tell your, your kids, right, your grandkids? Look at them in their face and say thank you. Why? Because the milk of saying thank you you know, for a lollipop or whatever, will ultimately turn into the meat of true contentedness regardless of circumstance. See, the beauty, I think, of true contentedness is that we'd be like, I guess, the, the tree from Jeremiah 17 that's planted by streams of living water, producing its fruit in season and out of seasons because it's anchored in the truth. It's anchored ultimately in relation to God. And all of the spiritually mature people I've ever met have really... I've been so grateful and so amazed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ that their love, which, which they received every day from Jesus, helped them interpret their circumstances around them. So I think the temptation for many of us, particularly when I'm not grateful, is to allow whatever circumstances befall me in life to sort of determine how I think God cares about me or doesn't care about me. So if my kids are obeying, and my car is running well, and, and my finances seem to be, you know, semi-stable. Uh, well, God loves me. I know this, right? Uh, and if my children are disobedient, or uh, perhaps I've said something dumb, or hurt my wife in some way, well, God doesn't love me, right? And that's, that's certainly not true. Now, God obviously wants us to live in accordance with his plan, absolutely. But, from, but we, need to, we need to remember, and I think we need to sort of grow an understanding of gratitude such that our gratitude for the grace of God in Jesus Christ helps us interpret the world around us and not the other way around because God loves us, right? And you remember in, um, in Philippians 4, you know that passage where, where I think you, you see it oftentimes in sports, like uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and it's usually like I'm going to kick your butt sort of thing. Uh, the passage is actually about contentment. Paul says, I found the secret to contentment. It's if I have a lot or if I have a little, I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me? Because ultimately, it's that gratitude and contentment in the grace which is given to him in Jesus Christ that helps him see the world around him. 
not whether or not he has a lot of money or little money in his bank account. And I think that's just a very helpful encouragement for us and because we know for a fact that the church in Corinth was, was struggling to embrace this. And we know that the fruit of that type of living, that the fruit of sort of rejecting contentedness, uh, wanting to be like the world around them, ultimately led only to jealousy and strife because that's exactly what he says. He says, if you are still in the flesh, there's jealousy and strife among you. Are you, not, are you not of the flesh and beholding and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? And what he's saying is jealousy, strife, division. These are all fruits of selfish, natural thinking. In fact, in James chapter 4, it says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this? You desire and you do not have, so you murder in your hearts. What he's saying is sometimes in, the, in that sort of natural man, when we desire things that are not good for us, or even when we desire good things that become best things, oftentimes we will judge other people or maybe be angry with other people because they're not serving that master that we think we need. Sometimes that can look like uh, obedient children, right? For me, sometimes when my children don't obey, I get excessively angry. And by the way, this is wicked, just to be very clear. I get excessively angry because they're not doing what I think I want in that moment. When I come home from work, I want peace, right? I deserve it. And when they don't give it to me, I'm right and yelling. No, no, I'm not. That is, uh, that, that is a product of the natural man. And that's what Paul is warning us against, right? God wants us to, to be content in Christ, not to sort of hold idols over others and judge them in accordance with those idols. And that's exactly what Paul is seeing here in, in Corinthians. I remember one time when I was in seminary, I was, uh, I was, I was complaining about my wife. I, we, had, we had some intense fellowship that's sort of arguing. And, and I think I said earlier, it was like, it was about 80% my fault, 20%, it was 90% my fault, 10% her. And I remember I went into, I went into the sort of coffee room in the seminary and I was talking to an Anglican priest named Abel Wankuma. He's in, he's in Uganda. And as is typical with sort of Africans, they're wonderful, good listeners and they're, they're often very, very wise. And as I was complaining about all the things that were wrong with my wife, and there really is nothing wrong with my wife, uh, he just listened really well and sort of like that typical deep African wisdom said, Phil, the process of becoming one can be painful. And he was right. What he was right, I was, I was a newly married young man, and what he was simply saying to me is, you are being selfish. And, you are, and sometimes it's okay to sort of say, hey, the process of becoming one with your spouse is not always easy. And so maybe you should just be humble. And so I did. I had to go back and confess and repent some of the problems in my own heart, right? And to, and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. But I thank God for people like Abel Wankuma because he pointed me to Jesus and he pointed me to the spiritual wisdom that's found in, in relation to Christ. And that's what Paul is really all about. The divisions about who you follow after, who you listen to, Paul, Apollos, whomever. Paul didn't care. Paul, Paul simply wanted people to know about the riches of the glories of God in Jesus Christ. That's what he says in the second letter to the Corinthians. If you mind putting that up, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul didn't care if you forgot his name. I don't care if you forget my name. Jesus Christ has come to open your hearts to the truth of his love and affection for you. He overcame your sin. 
He overcame your selfishness and pride and mine too, just to be very clear. And he opens us to a, opens us to a, a relationship to him where we receive the gift, not just of his love and affection, but of new life and wisdom and truth and beauty, which ultimately pours out from the spirit as we seek to obey his word. See, I think Paul didn't care about whether or not people listened to him. He wanted people to listen to Christ. And this is absolutely true. I remember a couple years ago uh, when my son was born, uh, my, my oldest son, Cole, uh, when he was born, uh, we, were, we, were in, we were in Philadelphia at the time. And I, I don't know if any of you have had this before, but in our first birth, our first child, I say, I say that, my wife did 90% of the work. But in our first child, when our first child came into the world, uh, we experienced a lot of difficulty. And I think it was 10 or 15 hours into her labor, we started to realize that there was a problem. Right, the, the monitors, you know, the, the, the monitors started to beep just a little bit more. And, and perhaps you know that the more difficulty that you're having in any kind of operation room, you know that more specialists will start to aggregate in, right? Like, and we started to have more and more people slide in and, and come and start to be a part of what was going on. And it was very difficult. Was, the pressure was, was really starting to get intense. And, uh, and what was difficult is as we had about 10 or 12 specialists, men and women, all Ivy League educated, very smart people, who came in and were starting to murmur. Here's what I think it is. I don't know what's going on. Here's what I would do. And you can hear them talking to each other. They weren't talking to me because they know that I, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have been pretty. But the point is they were all murmuring among themselves saying, here's what I think we should do. I'm not sure what we're going to do. But none of them had the wisdom to know what to do. None of them had the power or the authority to save until out of nowhere in what seemed like an infinite amount of time, the doctor burst through the door. Right? He was a, a short doctor. He had Gucci loafers, a Rolex, and the confidence of the entire Argentinian soccer team after they won the World Cup. And everyone knew who was in charge when he stepped into the room. He came in and everyone shut their mouths. No one's opinion mattered anymore. No murmuring or speculation was relevant to the situation. Everyone shut up. Sorry, we're not supposed to say that in my house. Everyone got quiet. Right? We don't say... I, I, my children here? Yeah, anyway. Everyone got quiet, and they began to listen to what the doctor ordered them to do. And he would say, you do this, you do this, you move over here, you prepare this, you get out of my way. Everyone was humming and participating as they listened and obeyed his orders. And the beautiful thing was, in that moment, as everyone listened to the wisdom of that doctor, my son's life was saved. And we welcomed into the world a beautiful baby boy, and we celebrated that new life. Friends, this is what we're called to be as a church. Not people who are the center of attention, but people who recognize that it's only Jesus, the great physician of our souls, who is able to redeem and to restore that which is sinful and broken. And our job really is to point to him who can save. And as we listen to his wisdom, as we embrace the gospel of his hope, we can participate with him in his kingdom as he goes about redeeming and restoring that which is broken and lost. Thanks be to God we have a Savior who not only loves, but who lives and reigns and invites us into fellowship with him so that we can embrace his eternal life. Friends, we have an opportunity this morning uh, to just maybe slow down and consider where in our lives might, might we be ungrateful? Where in our lives might we be perhaps living more like the world than God's designed for us in the gospel? If that's you this morning, if perhaps just in your seats, or if you'd like to come up, you're welcome to come to the rail and receive the grace which is afforded to you and promised through Jesus Christ. 
If you'd like prayer, perhaps from someone else. On these straight rails over here, we have prayer ministers who are willing to pray for you. Invite you maybe just to slow down and consider the wisdom of God, which is offered to you in this very moment through God's holy word.